thank you guys for, uh, thank you for leaning in, coming back and leading us in worship. We appreciate it. I gotta catch my breath. It's good. It's good. I have uh, one other thing I just want to remind you of before we jump in to the message today. Uh, we were taking next steps uh, during the announcements earlier. What I didn't mention is uh, baptism. Um, in, a, in the next month, we're going to have the opportunity to celebrate baptism. And so if you're interested in being baptized or you've got questions about baptism, please don't hesitate to let me know. Um, you can let me know in person. You can email me. I'm Brian, B-R-I-A-N, at harvestchurcheugene.com. You can uh, fill out a communication card. Let me know on the communication card. Online, you can fill out the digital communication card. And we would love to know, um, obviously, how we can serve you, uh, what questions we can answer. But if regarding baptism, there's something we can uh, help you with that next step, we'd be glad to. In essence, in fact, I got the chance to interact with a couple of people this week. Baptism is not the thing that washes our sins away, right? Baptism is a reflection of what washes our sins away. That's specifically the blood of Jesus Christ. When he died on the cross, his blood was shed for our sins. When we receive him into our lives, we ask him to, um, to be our God, to be in charge of us, to be our Lord, be our Savior. We're making a commitment. Baptism then becomes a reflection of that commitment, a, a, um, not, not, not minimizing it at all, but a symbolic gesture that represents our going public with our faith, telling people that we identify with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so if you've never been water baptized, or you've got questions about that, uh, please don't hesitate to let me know. Catch my breath again. We're in a series called Soul Care that we began last week. You might remember, we asked on Easter Sunday how your soul was, right? And I proceed to tell you that, that uh, I said, what if you don't have a soul? What if you are a soul, right? Kind of a different way of looking at life. And so last week, we focused almost entirely, as we thought about soul care, we focused almost entirely on love. The fact that the resurrection is the proof that God's love loves us. The fact that the cross is the proof that God loves us. And so if the first step is love, you might take note that the next step, almost simultaneous next step, must be grace. Another way of saying that is I could have taken the topic we're talking about today and brought the exact same thing out in the Easter story. If you took love out of every spot I put it last week in the message and put the word grace in, it would pretty much entirely make sense. And so I want to unpack today what grace really is. But you remember we said last week that what we need to happen in our lives is have an identity change. That deep within us, we need to let the love of Jesus soak so deep into our souls. Not just here, here, here. So deep into our lives that it transforms us from the inside out so that what begins to come out of my life is that love of Jesus that is transforming my heart and my soul. And so today we're going to say the same thing about grace, that I need to let God's grace soak deep into my soul such that it transforms my soul and what others begin to see come out of me is the grace of Jesus working 
in me. Now, if any of this is confusing to you, we're going to see if we can unpack all of that today. And if you're like, I'm not even sure I know, understand what exactly you mean by grace, I'm glad you're here because we're going to, we're going to go step by step, piece by piece through all of that. I love the way the Bible explains the Bible. And when you're confused with something in the Bible, let's say you're reading over here like we were uh, you know, last month in the book of Daniel, and you're confused about something you read. What's really, really great about the Bible is that you've got the rest of the Bible to help you understand it. So you can turn over here and see what Jesus said about it. You can turn over here and see what the rest of the New Testament says about it. You can go back to the beginning and see what God said about it in the beginning. And so there are so many things like that. I want to show you something like that today. Not that anything we're going to talk about today is confusing, but let me read this verse to us. It's from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I just love the way Paul says this, verse 9. He says, and this is, this is a guy writing who his story in 10 seconds. He opposed the church. He hated the church. He killed people in the church because he thought they were a fraud for God. And he couldn't stand the name Jesus. And in one moment, one day, he has a vision of Jesus Christ himself. He has offered the grace of Jesus into his life. Again, we'll unpack that. And it changes him from the inside out. And he goes from the most fierce person opposing the faith of Jesus to perhaps the strongest person advocating for faith in Jesus, for grace in Jesus. In fact, that word grace came to represent almost all of his teaching. And we have a lot of this guy Paul's teachings here in the New Testament. So I'm going to read this one, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 9. He says, for I am the least of the apostles. The apostles were the leaders in the first church and I do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, verse 10 says, I am what I am. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, he says, I worked harder than all of them, meaning the other apostles. And yet not I... But it was the grace of God that was with me. So whether then it is I or they, it says whether it's me preaching or the other apostles preaching, this grace is what we preach, and this grace is what you believed. So what he's saying is that he had an experience with grace that was so deep that it transformed his soul from the inside out, became a part of his identity. He said, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And that grace began to flow through him as he began to share it with other people. Does this make sense? This is the point I'm trying to make to us today. But I want to go to another story in the Bible to see exactly what he's talking about. But to get there, I want to make sure I explain grace just a little bit better. Because grace is one of those words that we use in church and we go, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So what does grace mean? Grace? Okay, thank you. Right? What does grace mean? Forgiveness? Sort of. I think forgiveness is included in his grace. So we think of it this way. Forgiveness is when God cancels the debt we owe, right? When, 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 if, I, if I owe God something because of all the wrongs that I do, right? If, if there's, some, there's some 
frankly, some just punishment I deserve. And in his mercy, God doesn't give me what I deserve. In his forgiveness, he cancels what I deserve, which would be the punishment. Does this, does this make sense? Mercy goes beyond. Uh, mercy is the, is the enacting of that forgiveness or where that forgiveness is coming from in the heart of God. Grace goes beyond that. If we could say it this way, justice is getting what I deserve, right? I run a red light. I get a ticket. I go to court. I get what I deserve. Justice. May not like it. That's what I deserve. Mercy is when I go to court and the judge in his mercy says, you know what, I'm not going to enact that punishment this time. Which is what I'm always seeking when I go to court for a... You're like, how often does this happen? <laughs> I don't know, you want to get that personal today? Grace is getting favor. It, it goes beyond not getting the justice I deserve. It is God's favor. It is God's goodness. It is God's blessing. It is God's kindness that is given to me that I absolutely do not deserve. I was trying to get a like just super clear like dictionary definition that would make all of this make sense. And I came up with these three words. Overgenerous preferential treatment. Overgenerous, undeserved, preferential, meaning that I am preferred treatment, in this case, kindness, favor, blessing. It includes certainly mercy and all of the things we think of on the negative side that we're canceling. But what's interesting in all of this is the way the cross provides both justice and mercy. So just think about this for me, okay? I go to court, got my speeding ticket. I'm standing there, I say, God, judge, I'm guilty. Guilty as charged. Now imagine said judge said, I got a son, he'll take the ticket. Mercy, he'll pay it. Justice is met. He'll pay it. Okay. But even better, my son wants to hang out with you and invite you over. Right? Wants to hang out with you. Wants to help you never run stoplights ever again. My son wants to be deeply involved in your life. Wants to love you. Wants to care for you. Wants to show up for you. My son will be there when nobody else is. My son will favor you, will approve you, will like you, will support you. My son will show up when you absolutely do not deserve it. Not a get out of jail free card, because my son will pay the price. But my son will always show up no matter what for you. This is grace. This is going beyond mercy, beyond forgiveness. Beyond justice, justice is met 
But in grace, God is showing me favor I don't deserve. Grace has an interesting origin in the English language in that several languages of the world use it in different ways. In fact, we, we, we use it to say a lot of different things. We talk about how dancers have... I'm not going to dance, don't worry. We will say grace for a meal, right? In fact, even in other languages we say grace, we, we say things like, like gracias. Same root word. We'll talk about banks giving grace when they offer a grace period. But there's no better grace to sing about than when we gather together and we sing about amazing grace. If people were to ask me, what makes Jesus different? What makes Jesus different than man-made religion? What makes Jesus different than all the religions of the world? Even the religion of sort of churchianity, if you will. What makes, what makes Jesus different? If I could only use one word, I would pick this word. It's grace. And I want to show you how it shows up in another story in the Bible. I think our world runs on the exact opposite of grace. We'll get into that. But I want to read with you the Gospel of Luke, chapter 19. And if you don't have a Bible today, you can take one of our Bibles. We have Bibles in the back. We give them away for free. We think everybody should have one. That goes for you guys online as well. If you're online, you don't have a Bible, you want us to send you one, we would gladly do that. Again, we give our Bibles away for free. Everybody should have a Bible. Bible transforms our lives. It's how we know about Jesus and his grace. So Luke chapter 19, verse 1. Super familiar story if you were raised in church. Crazy, crazy story if you were not raised in church. Such a super familiar story for those raised in church. We have songs about this. In fact, I cannot read the story without hearing the songs in my head. And I went to Google said story this morning to see if there were like other verses. And I found out we have more than one song about this. <laughs> Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. Kind of an interesting little tidbit of information. This is in late in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus is passing through. The implication is he's passing through on his way to Jerusalem. Jesus has said over and over that when he gets to Jerusalem, he would be rejected, that he would be crucified, that he would be buried, and that he would rise again. This is Luke's hint right up front that this story is about grace. Jericho was the last city on the way to Jerusalem, and Jesus entered Jericho, and he was passing through. And a man was there by the name of Zacchaeus, and he was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. Now, just pause. Is there anything I said about tax collector that made you think, I want to hang out with this guy? I don't see anybody raising their hands which probably means we have no tax collectors in the room. You worked for the IRS, yeah. <laughs> yeah. My apologies for anything I say. I notice you're sitting, yeah, no, we love you. We're glad you're here. <laughs> now, add to this, this is, I'm just asking in our day, tax collector. Like, is it your favorite experience when a letter shows up from the IRS? 
Like, I get those, le- when, when they were doing all that stimulus money and something would come in the mail and say IRS, my heart would go, what is this, you know? Like, I'm always fearing the worst when IRS is on the envelope. Don't look at me like I'm the only one. You know, you don't like it when the IRS sends a letter either. Notice this. He wasn't just a tax collector. He was the chief tax collector. Now, in their day, tax collectors were hated. Because you have to understand, these people were Jewish, but they were dominated, ruled by the Romans. They considered tax collectors, again, nothing personal, to be sellouts to the Roman government. They were Jewish people who denied their own people, who would would collect taxes. And this is the way tax collecting worked. It's like going to a car dealership. They'd take that little slip of paper, and they'd write a number on it and say, here you go, this is how much you owe. And you would say, can I owe a little less than that? And they would add more to it, you know, and here's how much you owe. And then here's how the tax collectors made their money. Rome wanted this much. Anything they collected above that was theirs to keep. So tax collectors were known as thieves. I love you, brother. (laughs) I'm not talking about today. I'm saying back then. Tax collectors were known as thieves because they would rob you blind of what you owed, and they would live off some of it, and they would give, you know, what, what you really owed to Rome, and they would make their living <clears throat> luxuriously off the rest. Notice that it says he was wealthy, so luxuriously, and notice that he was the chief. Now, tax collectors were known for being scrupulous, meaning they had no scruples or marbles or something. They were known for not being fair, They were known for being, in their minds, miserable people, like low of the lows. These are not people you want to associate with. You get the picture? Jesus was passing through, and a man by the name of Zacchaeus was there. And he was a chief tax collector, he was wealthy, and he wanted to see who Jesus was. But because he was short, we little man was he, he could not see over the crowd. And so he ran ahead and he climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. And when he reached the spot, when Jesus did, so picture it, crowds of people, buzz in the air, everyone's excited. I mean, you know... Imagine there's a parade in town, and the guy with it's all about comes through. And there's one dude up in the tree, not a kid, full grown man. When Jesus reached the spot where he applied where Zacchaeus was, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So again, you have to sort of understand the background. In their day, to go to somebody's house, to stay at their house, to meal at their house with them, was to share fellowship, which would be another way and their way of saying to share approval. So all these people in town are thinking, 
man, I want to know more about Jesus. And Zacchaeus is the same, and he's back in the back doing this, you know? And he gets tired of that after a while. He says, forget this, I'm going to climb the tree. I don't blame him. But what surprises him is not that he's trying to figure out who Jesus is. It's that Jesus already knows who he is. Zacchaeus, come down immediately. If I'm up in the tree, I'm going, what? I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly, welcomed him with joy. And all the people saw this, and they began to, and here's a sign that they weren't happy, mutter. You know when people mutter? <laughs> Speak under their breath. They said, get this, he's gone to be the guest of a sinner. Which in their minds, this was a slam. This meant if he knew who this dude really was, he wouldn't have invited himself over to this guy's house. If he knew how bad this guy was, he wouldn't have invited himself over to this guy's house, which is a slam on Jesus. He must not know everything he thinks he knows. If this guy's really a Messiah, he wouldn't possibly hang out with this guy. I mean, if, if anybody, we all know, if anybody deserves to hang out with him, it's got to be every guy in the crowd would have thought me. Right? I mean, why does he deserve to hang out with him and I don't? But Zacchaeus stood up. This is by the time they're at the house. Stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half my possessions to the poor, and if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I'll pay it back four times the amount. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham, for the Son of Man came to seek and save. Seek and save what? The lost. The sinners. The folks who knew they were messed up. The folks who knew they were outcasts. The folks who knew they were broken. The folks who knew they needed healing. I mean, time and time again, Jesus shows up and does miraculous things in the lives of people who know they don't deserve it. And time and time again, the people who thought they deserved it were confronted by Jesus because they also didn't deserve it, but they didn't know it. In fact, if we wanted to take the two stories I'm reading from today and contrast them, just think for just a moment. You have Zacchaeus, who's considered down here. And how do you think it feels to feel like Zacchaeus? You ever felt down here? Felt guilt? Felt shame? It's awful. It's awful. Paul, on the other hand, would have been one of the religious elites who theoretically could have been there. And Paul would have considered himself best of the best. Look down on everybody else. Paul would have said, I deserve for Jesus to come over my house, except he rejected Jesus because, because he's no way this guy is who he says he is. In both cases, they have sin bound up in them. In both cases, they have pride locked up in them. Pride on Paul's part saying, I don't need a guy like Jesus in my life. Pride in Zacchaeus' part 
saying, I deserve to get everything I want out of this world. Today, salvation has come to this house because this man, too, is a son of Abraham, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Interestingly, Jesus takes that statement by Luke and frames it here in this story, but that is sort of the mission statement of Jesus. I mean, I realize that's modern language, but, but this is Jesus saying it. You know, why did Jesus come to this world? That verse is the answer. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Seek and save the lost. I like that it says that Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was. I think that's a lot of us in this world when we feel like outsiders. That's a lot of us in this world when we're trying to figure out, is this Jesus guy for real? What's amazing about this is not that Zacchaeus is seeking Jesus. It's that Jesus is seeking Zacchaeus. That's grace. Undeserved blessing. Undeserved favor. Undeserved goodness. Undeserved kindness. This story is largely about how I see grace, and maybe even more importantly, how grace sees me. But it changes everything, and we've used outlines like this before. I'm largely going to say that this changes how I see everything. It changes how I see God. It changes how I see myself and my sins. It changes how I see other people. But before I give you the outline, I want to think of it with our souls this way. So I'm going to put an image on the screen. You guys know what this is, right? picturing the Titanic off. Right? This is an iceberg, right? And, and we all know, because we've been taught this in school, right, that what is above the surface in the iceberg is typically thought to be less than what is below the surface. Right? That icebergs are beautiful and gorgeous, and, but you don't want to run into one because if your boat runs into it, you're in trouble. We know this, right? Right? So our souls are a lot like this iceberg. Because there is what everybody else sees. And there is what nobody but God and I see. My bad. That wasn't God. That was just our... <clears throat> I can make it happen again if you want. There's what everybody else sees, and there is what only God and I see. And most of us in this world spend a lot of energy on what everybody else sees, don't we? But God isn't really impressed by all that stuff, if I'm just frankly honest. In fact, is there anything in this story that makes you think that God is impressed by Zacchaeus, and that's why Jesus wants to come to his house? Not at all. He wants to go to his house because he needs him. Because Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. And so I'm going to say it this way about grace. that I need grace to do a lot of things in my life. But if grace is going to transform my life such that I am from the inside out transformed by this, this favor of God, this preferential treatment of God is going to happen inside my soul. And it's totally undeserved but it's going to happen inside of me such that other people begin to see it play out. 
then I'm going to say it this way. Grace must, must reach below the surface to change my life above the surface. Grace really has, truly has, to reach below the surface to change my life above the surface. In a sense, I'm saying I can't have a surface relationship with Jesus Christ. You know, one where everybody else sees it and goes, oh, well, he's a good, he's a good God kind of guy. Above the surface, my relationships, my actions, my decisions, the things that are very visible in my life to not only myself, but to everyone else. Below the surface, the hidden things, the hidden thoughts, the struggles of the emotions, the wrestling of the soul. Of course, the things like sin and pride, insecurity. I think about it, we could spend hours on the idols we pursue. I don't mean little tinky torch lit things. I, I don't mean things that go on shelves. I mean things we make into gods in our and our souls, just things we go after that, that we really shouldn't. So what I want to do with the time today to explain this and illustrate it is I want to go back through the story one more time. And I want to give us four lessons from out on the limb. You could say we're going out on a limb. too. You could say that Zacchaeus went out on a limb to see Jesus, right? I mean, seriously, think about it. How amazing is it that the tree Zacchaeus needed was planted long, long before he needed it? God grew the tree that would help Zacchaeus see Jesus. If you want to blow your mind a little more and shake up your soul a little more, God grew the tree that was shaved into that crossbeam that Jesus hung on. All in God's plan, all in God's heart, God grew the tree. And I would say it was bloomed in grace. Have you ever noticed when you hang out with people who are feeling anxious, you get anxious? Have you noticed that? Have you ever noticed that when you hang out with people who are afraid, you get afraid? You ever notice if you hang out with people who are angry, you get angry? And a lot of the things we feel, we talk about emotions in this world, a lot of those things are contagious. I'm going to suggest to you that grace is contagious as well. And so what I need is I need grace to see me, I need grace to transform me, and I need, to be, I need grace to be what comes from me. So let me give you four lessons from out on the limb. Number one, we'll go through them pretty quick. Grace sees me as a person needing grace, right? A whole lot of it. I am a person who needs grace. So here's Paul's problem. The guy who said, by the grace of God, I am what I am. I told you, he opposed Jesus. He persecuted the church. He hated the church. He did everything he could to knock out the spread of grace. Paul's problem was he thought he was better than all those people. He didn't see himself as a person needing grace until he stood face to face with Jesus. And a lot of the people who muttered under their breath the day Zacchaeus went up that tree, oh, he went to be to the house of a sinner. Like, who, why would he do that? A lot of those people thought the same thing. He doesn't deserve this. He doesn't deserve this. 
And for some of us, what keeps us from God is the very thought that we don't deserve it. And I'm going to be straight. You're right. We don't. I don't. There is absolutely nothing about me that makes me deserve what Jesus does in my life. I am unworthy. But in grace, Jesus sees me as a person who needs it, as a person who who's, he's willing to rescue. I mean, seek and save the lost. This sounds like people who are, you know, like people who head out. Lord bless you. Thank you. I think of people, I think of Navy SEALs going on a rescue mission, seek and save the lost. Right? I, I think of those who, who patrol the shores, who head out to sea to save the boat that's immersed in water, seek and save the lost. This is the kind of mission Jesus is going on. Can you imagine if every time the firefighters heard there was a fire, they stopped to say, do these people deserve it? My house would burn to the ground. So what grace does is it begins to see me as, yes, unworthy and, yes, undeserving, but as a person who needs it nonetheless, a person who needs grace and a person who is, and we can debate this all day long, but I, I, I wrote in my notes, worth rescuing, but I don't mean worthy of rescue. When I see my child struggle, they may not be worthy, but I still love them. Our world works on the exact opposite, really, if you think about it. The world judges by all the standards that, that actually Luke noted for us. Our world judges by profession. Our world judges by success. Our world judges by appearance. All these things are noted about Zacchaeus. He was successful. He was wealthy. Our world judges by popularity. He was hated. Our world judges by achievement. He was the chief tax collector. Our world judges by appearance. He was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. Our world judges by all the ways that tend to invade our souls below the surface. And you can't tell me that you don't wrestle with all those things below the surface because you grew up in this place that is so highly influenced at this point in the world by achievement, by affluence, by appearance, by approval, popularity, performance, you name it, all of that has already invaded your soul. If you don't believe me, just rethink high school. Bingo. Jesus operates on grace. The world operates on ungrace. This is what I think Paul was getting at. I am the least of the apostles. Back in 1 Corinthians 15, I don't deserve to be called an apostle. I persecuted the church of God, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. How amazing is that? Number two, grace sees Jesus a certain way, 
right? We've already said this. I'm just making the point here to be clear. Grace is able to see Jesus as God searching for me. The people in that day would have greatly, greatly struggled with the idea that God came searching for the lost. God came searching for the sinners. Jesus was always saying stuff like this, though, right? Remember, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick, which means you've got to admit that you're sick. Jesus was always going out of his way to meet the need of someone who didn't deserve it, while all the people who postured themselves in front of him about how great they were, he reminded them, Nicodemus, well, it's good you're all that, man, but you need to be born again or born from above. Jesus is always working below the surface to bring grace below the surface of my life. Zacchaeus, I love this contrast, of course, is seeking to understand Jesus. But the truth is, Jesus already knows who Zacchaeus is, and he chooses him anyway. Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. Jesus loves sinners. That's the bottom line. He doesn't just put up with them. He actually loves them. Note that this happened in Jericho. There's a very, very famous story way, way, way back, the early part of the Bible, about a woman in Jericho. And I don't mean this badly about her, but she also was known as being very much a sinner. And God chose her and used her. And if you've ever thought, I don't think Jesus would really like me, you should read this story. We have this sneaking suspicion that Jesus isn't really like this, that he doesn't really choose people who are really messed up. He doesn't really choose people who are really prideful or who are really broken. He doesn't really choose people who don't deserve it. And yet story after story after story in the New Testament is Jesus choosing people who don't deserve it. We tend to think that God still loves us. And even those of us who are Christians, who've already accepted grace in our lives, who've said the cross matters to me, Jesus died for my sins, Jesus rose again, I believe it, I receive his forgiveness. We still live our lives thinking that God loves me because of what we do, or because of what we don't do, that I am good enough for God to love me today. And when I do, in my mind, bad things, I am bad enough for God not to love me today. We still live like that a whole lot. My best days have nothing to do with whether or not God loves me, and neither do my worst days. He does love me. It's called grace. And note, his grace is scandalous. Jesus is willing to suffer disgrace to make sure that Zacchaeus doesn't miss grace. Disgrace because the crowd's going, do you know what he's doing? Zacchaeus didn't miss grace. Number three, this is very similar to what I said in the one thing. I just want to apply it here, make sure we're understanding it. Grace sees my sins below the surface as a place. Maybe I should just read what I wrote, right? Grace sees my sins as a place in my soul below the surface 
so that others can notice the difference above the surface. It's a place to work in my life. So let's think of it this way. I've got problems in my life, do you? All right, those are places for Jesus to work. How many of your problems are exterior, everybody else sees them? You've got a few of those. How many of your problems are interior, only you and God see them? I got some of those. Let's take out the word problem, put in the word sins. Now, everybody likes the word sin, but let's work on it. Sin means to fall short. You got some areas in your life you fall short? You got some above the surface things everybody else sees? I, too, am a wee little man. Not exactly. But I'm not a tall little man either. I didn't go to the spring game yesterday, but I'm guessing the average height on that field was not mine. Our world sort of favors. There's a billion ways we could look at that. There are a million ways I fall short. But the ones below the surface are the greatest place for grace to work in my life. The things that I shove down, the things I hide from, the things I want to make sure nobody knows, the things I want to make sure nobody else gets out, those become the little idols in my life. And get this, I can't enthrone Jesus in those places without dethroning those little gods in my life. For Zacchaeus, that would have been the way he achieved his wealth all of those years. And at some point in your relationship with Jesus, you have to address the things below the surface that you're trying to shove and keep below the surface. But what grace wants to do is grace sees those things in my life and says, ah, yes, those are great places to work. Because when grace begins to work in those places in my life, amazing, miraculous things begin to happen above the surface. This is part of what Jesus is talking about when he talks about dying to self. A lot of times, we want to gloss over certain things in our lives. We want to ignore certain things in our lives. But it's impossible to look at sin as something to be minimized and ignored when I look into the eyes of Jesus on that cross. The reality is, hiding my sin is not grace. Hiding my sin is actually hypocrisy. Hiding from my sin is not grace. Hiding from my sin is denial. Hiding in grace so that I can keep on sinning whenever I want. That's not really grace either. That's more like a get-out-of-jail-free card. The bottom line is that grace really drives me to the point that I must deal with some stuff. For Zacchaeus, it was the way he had robbed people all of those years. Zacchaeus stood up, said, look, Lord, here and now, interesting he calls Jesus Lord, because that's what this is largely about. Will, it be, will he be Lord of some of those things below the surface in my life? Here and now, I give half my possessions to the poor, and if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay it back four times the amount. Jesus said, today salvation has come to this house, because he, this man too, is the son of Abraham. Son of man came to seek and save 
the lost. And Jesus is thinking, yeah, this is the way it's supposed to work. And don't mistake this. This is not Zacchaeus buying his way out of hell. This is not Zacchaeus saying, if I give enough, God will like me. This is Zacchaeus saying, I know that I have done wrong. I know that I have done what I shouldn't do. Let's also be careful about ever daring to assess in our own minds whether someone else is worthy of meeting God. Because you don't know what God's doing in someone's heart below the surface. But I promise you this, Zacchaeus works repentance below the surface. What happens? He begins to make things right above the surface. See how that works? It's just a beautiful illustration. By the grace of God, I am what I am. One last thing, and we're going to pray. Grace sees other people as needing grace as well. In fact, a whole lot of it. Grace gets into me, infects my soul in a good way, begins to transform me, and begins to become the eyes through which I see other people, and I begin to see other people as people who need grace too. Not just for me to treat them in grace, but they need the grace of Jesus. It means, among other things, that they need me to treat them with grace and likely need me to verbalize grace at some point along the way. Specifically, the grace of Jesus. Luke is making the point that Jesus points out here as Son of Man, this is why he came. Again, Jesus endured disgrace to make sure that nobody would miss grace. I think Jesus knew I'm dying on the cross for people who absolutely don't deserve it. And I stand before the cross as a person who can say, I am not worthy. But I can also say thank you for grace. In fact, in a lot of languages, you know how I would say thank you? Yeah, I would say grazie. I would say muchos gracias. Starts with grace and ends with grace. Do you need it? I do. I'm going to end with our two prayers. I'm going to send us home. We always end our services with two prayers. The first, a prayer of salvation, and the second, a prayer of application. If you're here today and you have thought for a while, you know what, I need Jesus, but I'm just not good enough. Like, I haven't fixed my life yet enough. I'm not, I haven't worked at it enough yet. I haven't changed enough yet. Let me tell you, you're not going to be able to change it without grace. You're not going to be able to change it without Jesus. It's not about getting good enough. People say that to me about baptism. They'll say, like, well, I'm just not good enough yet. If it's good enough, none of us are ever going in that water. If you need salvation today, would you pray with me just like this? Dear Jesus, I admit, I admit that I am not worthy. And I sin. I fall way short. And I don't deserve you. But I believe you lived, died, you were buried, and you rose again. To not only forgive my sin, but to live in my life and offer me grace. 
So Jesus, help me to drink from your grace and live from your grace every day. I turn to you. I repent. And I ask you to transform my soul from the inside out. In Jesus' name. Amen. If that's you and you receive salvation for the first time today, man, I'd love to know. You can tell me. You can tell somebody you came with. You can fill out a digital communication card online. You can fill out a physical one if you're here in the room. We would just love to know and love to celebrate that with you. A lot of you prayed that prayer a while ago, and yet grace is not something you've thought of enough, and you today want to say, I need to think about grace every day. I need, to, I need to let this grace transform me every day. Would you pray this prayer of application of, of, of discipleship with me? Jesus, thank you for grace. I know I don't deserve it, but I thank you I have you anyway. So please grow more grace in my life and do whatever is necessary below the surface so that grace changes me above the surface. And may others see your grace in my life and want it as well. Jesus, thank you. You came in to seek and save lost people like me. Thank you, I am found. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God is good, isn't he? Even the tax collectors, even the firefighters, even the teachers, don't forget those little cards. Again, you can put them in the baskets as you go today. Uh, um, we would just love, love, love to share some harvest love, some harvest grace with some teachers here in our neighborhood. So we're going to end in this place today. As you go today, I want you to go knowing that his grace is always, is always good. Most people dread Mondays. Monday is a day of grace, too. You got this. I love you guys. I love you online, too. We'll see you next week.